0: Welcome, everyone, back to another episode of the Ambit Podcast. I'm your host, Seamus Medan, and today, Noam Bardeen, the former CEO of Waze and now founder of Post, joins the show. During his time as the CEO of Waze, he launched Waze ads and drove monthly active users from 2,000 to 140 million. He also built up the Waze global community and much more. Now, he's the CEO and founder of Post, which aims to bring high-quality news with real people and real conversations directly to your feed, taking on Elon Musk and Twitter. First off, Noam, thank you for taking the time to join the show. It's a pleasure to have you on today.
1: Well, thank you for inviting me. I'd, le- I'd like to say something about what you just said around uh, taking on Elon Musk and Twitter. Now, a lot of people like to talk about Post as a Twitter alternative, and I personally don't believe there will ever be a Twitter alternative. I know there's a large number of Twitter clones out there that are like politically focused, but Twitter, Facebook, YouTube were phenomena that were time-specific with a, a set of technologies, a set of consumer features, et cetera, that made them happen. I don't think they'll be replaced, but that doesn't mean that there won't be new a new generation yeah. of social. And I think we're at the beginning of this change to the next generation. The biggest example, of course, is TikTok, right? TikTok is not YouTube, but it's replaced the the usage of YouTube and a lot of the functionality of YouTube with something else. And that's very much how we see Post. Now we're, the the news industry is a $150 billion industry, which has not really changed in the last 20 years. And it's about to change pretty dramatically. And this is where we are part of that change. And so Post is a social platform for news, trying to bring what we've learned from social and solve some of the problems in social.
0: Gotcha, so it's a new social platform for news. That makes total sense. So I think before we dive into post, I first wanna start off with you. What is the earliest thing I need to know about you to understand who you are and all that you have accomplished?
1: It's funny, I my father was a computer engineer and my brother's a computer engineer, and I wanted to go a very different way. And I studied economics and political science. I was gonna to go to the World Bank and save the world and all kinds of other things, and ended up accidentally getting into a tech in Israel in the early 90s. And that kind of led to a world where when we sold ways to Google, both me and my brother were VPs at Google at the same time. But we each took a very different track. He went computer science, you know, Stanford, et cetera. I went political science and Harvard, et cetera. But we ended up at the same place.
0: Gotcha. Okay. And then now that we get into Post, what is Post and what inspired you to create it?
1: So I've been obsessing about news, misinformation, disinformation for the last, I don't know, eight, nine years. And I believe we have two really big problems in the world today. First is global warming. And I wish I was a chemical engineer or something that that, that could help there. And the second is authoritarianism. And I look at them as kind of the hardware and the software problem. Uh, Global warming, climate change really is the hardware problem. Will we be able to live here? Authoritarianism is about will it be worth living here? And frankly, I don't know if living in Russia is worth living, you know, living in Iran, you know, in these oppressive regimes. And we've seen this wave of authoritarianism sweep across democracies all over the world, right? And it's Brazil, it's the Philippines, it's Israel, it's the U.S. And there are a lot of different reasons for that. But I believe that part of that really is access to information, access to news, our civil discourse online, and the ease of manipulating a lot of the online discourse that foreign actors have, have chosen. And so that's what drove me to, to. I just, I couldn't not do something in the space. I consume most of my news from social channels, or used to, and found that that's experience that consumers have proven to want, but is really lacking. So when I imagine the ultimate news experience, I want one feed with all the bells and whistles of social media. You can like and forward and comment and everything that you'd want to do around that. But it brings in multiple sources. News is not just politics, sports, you know, the traditional categories, right? News can be so many different things. And more than that, the generators of news are also very different. It used to be re- journalists. Now it's newsletter writers, it's creators, it's experts. It's a right someone who happens to be somewhere. And that's the beauty of social to me, being able to bring all these different things, personalize it into one feed and be able to consume it directly from the feed. Now, the challenge with the traditional social media networks, I believe, stems back to the original business model of advertising, which is they are driven by engagement. And when your algorithms are about engagement, you will surface hate and toxicity because it works. We're humans. We, we We get mad, get upset. We stay engaged.
0: Driven by emotion, and
1: yep. Driven by emotion. I mean, we're just a step away from the monkeys, right? Let's be realistic. And so when you think about it in those terms, right, the business model always wins. And so at Post, we're trying to build a very different uh, platform. I believe that current social platforms are really designed for the extreme, right? It's designed for culture warriors who want to get on and fight with everyone, trolls and toxicity and all this kind of stuff. We have to thrive on that. We want to build a platform for the 80% of normal people. Not the extremes, not the culture warriors who who want to go and fight people, people that want to come online, read their news on the wide sense of the news, meet people, communicate, discuss. They might get mad, they might be happy, but they're not in there to be called a communist or fascist. That's not why they're coming online. So that's who we have targeted in our view. I mean, think about Twitter. 75% of Twitter users have never tweeted. They consume content. But the platform is built for the cool kids who are out there fighting their, their wars. And we want to build... For regular people, people who just want to enjoy social, learn, uh, get access to information, and not be in these culture wars. So that's really what Post is about. To do this, though, we have to solve a few of the problems with social, right? Uh, Problem number one is toxicity. And as I said, we are very aggressive in our moderation policies. Uh, We do not, if you're a racist or a bigot, that's fine for you. There are enough platforms that will support you we're not for you. So if you come on our platform and begin spouting racist shit, we're gonna kick you off. And we have a, a model that with different levels and you know people get moved up and down. We, get, we can discuss that. But at the essence, we don't want those people on the platform. We've seen it all. We've seen Russian trolls, about farms, and we've seen trolls come on the platform. People that are just here to mess with people. Well, we don't want you here. So that's one thing toxicity. Second is the business model. Today, social media and publishers and creators it are at odds on the business model. Social media wants you to stay on their platform doom scrolling. And if you click on an ad, on a, on a piece of content, you go to someone else's website and they lose the ad views. And so they don't really care whether or not the publishers are successful. I believe publishers are very important uh, news publishers and creators and journalists. I don't believe that my uh, views, heavily researched on TikTok, are the same as a journalist in an editorialized environment with years of reputation. It's just not the same, and we shouldn't treat it the same. So we want to create a place where both content and and, and publishers and creators can live and and make money together with consumers. I think what consumers want is to consume within the feed. You know, today you get someone shares an article with you. You click on it. You go to a website. You get hit with 500 different email capture forms and a paywall. You want to read the article. I'm not going to subscribe to this site for now for $20 a month when I just want to read the article. And so to solve all of this, we've created a micropayments network, which is built on points, very similar to Twitch, right? So when you join the platform, you immediately have a digital wallet. It's immediately pre-funded with 50 points. And every creator can set a price or ask for tips or any other model for their content. And we've taken out the friction. So you can pay one cent or three cents. You now Think about, you're gonna read an article, someone wants five cents for it. Are you not going to pay five cents for the article? What's five cents? But five cents is a $50 CPM. So when you begin thinking differently from the traditional world of ads and subscription, right, into micropayments, lots of new business models evolve. We've seen uh, publishers get tipped by the consumers, Pu- you know, large publishers, brand names, because people appreciate things. And I think that there's a new generation of people who grew up on gaming networks that are used to these ideas of being able to tip people and be able to, to purchase things with very small transactions. And so those are two big changes we're bringing, and we believe those will make a fundamental change to how social is handled.
0: You mentioned that model of toxicity. You know, early stages of a company like Twitter, I know you guys aren't trying to compare yourself to Twitter, but in the early stages, there was a high quality of network and engagement, But as it scaled, it it just kept on degrading. LinkedIn is actually one of the few platforms that has been able to keep that high quality engagement, just because if you're going to post something that's bad, you don't want to destroy your reputation. When I've spoken to VCs and founders, this is something they all realize. How do you think you can keep up with that high quality network and engagement at scale?
1: So there's a variety of things. By the way, not everything has been built out. So we're talking about where we want to get to, right? Yep. But... When we think about verification, we're not thinking about a blue check mark. Yes, a blue check mark signifies that you're verified. But in our case, we want your real name to be attached to your profile. So you can decide not to be verified, and then you're anonymous. But if you are verified, and we hope that all our users will be verified, obviously it's free, but we want all users to be verified with their real names. And that's what you see on LinkedIn as well. When you operate under your real name, you act differently than you do when you're acting anonymously. So that's one level. Second level is we don't believe that everyone should get the same reach as everyone else. And so we have a system in place with different levels of access that that really goes to how far your content is distributed. And basically, things you do, whether positive or negative things, impact your score and we have this reputation score in the background. And so if you if your content is liked and you're followed, people share your content, etc., your score goes up. If you are blocked and muted, and if you have a flag, et cetera, your content, the reputation score goes down. And these are long cycles to build up the reputation score. And so, you know, once you've spent the time building it up, you definitely don't want to destroy it by acting like an asshole or something, right? And so we want to – these tools will help do that. But, but it has to go both ways. So if someone flags your content and it goes up to a reviewer and the reviewer says, hey, this is not a Nazi movie. This is a Disney movie your reputation score gets dinged as the person that flagged it so within this kind of a system we believe we can go really far and we want to make it much more of a community-based approach at the end similar to wikipedia or ways i mean the things i found at ways that i'm bringing over the post is there is no limit to what a community will do if they're motivated if you have the right tools in place right because obviously there's always bad actors no matter what you do but if you take all that together and you build the right framework there is no limit and you know, the, the example I like to use is, is what happened in Mi- Myanmar with the Facebook, right? And I don't know if you're familiar with it, but in general, Facebook drove violence in Myanmar at a different level than it ever happened. Myanmar couldn't reach anyone on Facebook, so finally they pulled the plug on the internet to the country. And then all the violence subsided. But that's the first time Facebook called them up. Hey, we see the traffic drop. What's going on, right? There is no way a, a hired person in a call center In India can understand the tension between the Muslims and the the Hindus, the the Buddhists in Myanmar. There's no way. But everyone in Myanmar understands that. And that's what we want to tap in, right? So as your reputation score grows, at a certain point, we know we can trust you because you've been on the platform for a long time and you've had multiple interactions and they're all good. Suddenly, when you decide to flag content, maybe we'll take the content off immediately without even reviewing it because we can trust you as a valued member of our community. And this is the model that we're building that we believe can scale. I think that Waze and, and Wikipedia are the only or part of a very few number of community-based approaches that managed to scale while preserving quality.
0: Gotcha. You mentioned misinformation before. How do you ensure the quality and credibility of the content on post news? And how do you deal with misinformation or fake news or biased reporting, especially with independent journalists?
1: So that's obviously a huge problem, and we will not solve it 100%, and it can't be solved 100% because we're all humans, and so humans are not perfect. We look at, at toxicity at several levels. First level is the attack on people because of your gender, because of your race, because of whatever it is. And that we're not even negotiating. That you're off the platform. There are cases of, of, of proven you know, flat earthers, for example, that's something that we don't really need to support. It's been proven uh, enough times. But the reality is everything else, most stuff is in the gray. It's in the, that gray zone. And there, our goal is to actually just shrink the reach of these types of, of uh, misinformation campaigns when it's gray. When it's black and white, it's easy to deal with, but very few things are black and white. And so as, uh, as people begin taking different extreme opinions, which are not uh, the, where the community decides, that these opinions are not accepted, the community can demote them. And that's very important because what you say in America in English is very different than what you say in France in French. And what's acceptable for different groups is very different. And that's why we want to lean into communities as the method for doing this. Because in Myanmar, you may not be okay to say some things about Muslims that in America, it might be okay. Right. So our hope is to be able to build on these communities. The communities will, self, will self-regulate will self the content in their areas. You know, when we think about our vision long term, we'd love to have verified doctors, for example, get a separate weight in their reputation score on issues that have to do with medicine. Right. We can begin. When you, once you have these scores that are in there, you can begin looking at who should have higher weight in these algorithms than others. And, and this is philosophically how we're building out our service.
0: Gotcha. I noticed building a community can be an extremely difficult task. Last year, I joined this startup called Valley, which we were trying to connect founders and investors, basically like a higher higher quality version of Twitter for investors to find founders to fund and founders to be able to provide frequent updates and stay transparent with the investors. I led the growth of the app to a few hundred users over a few weeks, but the problem was it was extremely difficult to build an actively engaged community. We found later on that it, it wasn't actually the best business model for the business, so we have since pivoted. But how are you going about building the community over at Post?
1: So you're absolutely right. Building communities is part science, part art, part magic. Uh, it's it's very hard to measure a community. Right? How do you measure a successful community? And at ways we spent years trying to understand why do some countries communities evolve organically, and in other countries they never happen. Right? Why are some people so active? So we couldn't find any kind of rules that would hold up across multiple communities. Each community was different, and so a lot of this really is a trial and error. There are a few things that we're trying to do, though. One is we are partnering directly with publishers to ingest premium content into the platform. And that's one way of providing value day one. It's a chicken and egg problem to the community, right? You come, there's no one there, the empty room problem. If you're the first person in the room, there's no one there. You're going to leave, and the room is never going to fill up, right? So we want to make sure that we seed as much content as we can. We're also building tools for creators to ingest. For example, newsletter writers should be able to ingest their content into our platform as well, right? There should be a lot of different ways to get in. We're also allowing people to share content from anywhere on the internet. We're not trying to say we are going to be the only source of content. You find content, share it, just like you would on social, right? The kind of rules on social, which Twitter is now broken, that you allow anyone to share anything from another network, right? And so we want to support all those kinds of things. And on top of that, a lot has to do with the transparency, right? You can growth hack your way to cheating your KPIs without really building a healthy community. And so for us, the intangible part of the community is, is super important. The intangible is how much do people care? Yeah. You know, when you have bugs, how many people report it? How many people care? How angry do they get? Anger is good. Anger means that they care. Silence is your enemy. The worst thing that can happen in a community is you just don't hear anything. So we hear a lot from our community. They're very, very engaged in what's going on. They have a lot of feedback and a lot of, of interaction, let's call it that way. And this hardcore group, which is kind of our core in community, came on when we launched in November. In November, we did. You know, we were planning to launch in March, but Twitter was going through its initial meltdown. And we wanted to be part of that discussion. So we launched a very simple MVP product. It had a wait list that quickly grew to 650,000 people. Out of them, about 430,000 signed up for the product and it was a broken product that was i mean when we launched it it didn't have it had one feed for everyone it had no search and you couldn't actually follow people i mean it was like really broken but we managed to get that initial community in that are engaged and they're helping guide us in terms of what to build right we hear from the experiment with them etc one of the problems people love to talk about data data driven but to be data driven, you need to have enough people generating the data to be statistically significant. And so that allowed us to break the chicken and egg. And now if you join Wade, if you join Post, <laughs> you will find a, a large variety of content from different sources. There are publishers like uh, the Independent or USA Today or Wired or Vanity Fair or a variety of premium brands that you can their are the content ingested. There are publishers that are sharing content like the Atlantic or Boston Globe or LA Times. They're just sharing their content back to their site, which is fine. You have uh, creators on that are are either sharing their their sub stacks or their newsletters or writing native content on the platform. And so we're getting all these different sources coming in. And and through that, we're beginning to learn what works and what doesn't.
0: Gotcha. I was reading some studies before this conversation, and I found one that was particularly interesting. So there was this group of researchers that took a stratified sample of around 212 students from a private university who used social media. Out of the 82 students surveyed that presented a dependence on social media, 69.5% of them had depressive symptoms. Why does this problem exist?
1: So first of all, I don't know, and no one really knows, but Jonathan Haidt has done a lot of research. It's very interesting, the space. And we say social media, Social media is not a product anymore. It's a feature. You know, when when we started out with Waze, there was this wave of mobile-first companies. That was like a unique thing to be able to have your app work on mobile, right? Or there were location companies, right? Today, location is a fl- feature. It's an API on another platform, right? It used to be companies. I think social is the same. I think Facebook is the last kind of pure social media company, which is an index of people connecting to each other. Because today, with mobile phones, you don't need it anymore. and, and so. Social as its own has changed. There are, obviously, Instagram has a very, very big impact on youth, specifically girls, by the way, and teenage girls. And we see a huge increase in depression, self-harm, et cetera, happening as soon as Instagram began and mobile began, right? Much less on boys, by the way, which also is interesting. Another interesting study I read by Jonathan Haidt is that conservative girls were impacted less than liberal girls. So we're just learning how all these things interact in us. In general, I personally believe that the more real a platform is, the healthier it is. And if you have real people with their real names sharing information and 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 getting rid of the toxic side, it's a very different story than having these Photoshop auto-tuned images where everyone's having a wonderful time except you, right? And everyone thinks that of everyone else, right? And so. I think it's a, saying social is a big statement. I think Instagram specifically, and by the way, TikTok as well, have a very negative effect on, on kids. We're learning what it is. I don't think we know exactly what it is, but we definitely know there's a strong link there.
0: Yep. And I want to take a step back before we wrap it up. You built Waze with just $38 million. How do you think founders can take advantage of maximizing every dollar? Because I feel in today's landscape, raising money is very idolized, but really it shouldn't be. And it may not always be a good thing depending on your business. I feel like what should be idolized is how far you could get with as little as you need. The problem with that is it can be hard to measure and it's hard to brag about. So, but what do you think about that?
1: So it's funny because just this morning, I was having this conversation with someone. I think one of the ills of our industry is this focus on fundraising. And that's because it's lazy reporting. You know, it's easy. It's a number. People get excited about it. But it drives a whole mentality, a mentality of which it lasts, I guess, 10 years has gone crazy. Now, since 2008, money became free. And so free money created all kinds of issues. And and the thing that can kill a startup more than anything is raising too much money. And so it's very, very important, I think, as an industry, that we move away from the money you raise or the valuation. You know, when when we sold Waze, a unicorn was a company that sold for a billion dollars or more, or a company that went public at a billion dollars or more. But the industry changed that to unicorn being something that raised money at a billion dollars. Raising money in a billion dollars, you can raise $1 to a billion dollars and you're now valued at a billion dollars, right? It's 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 the wrong metric. It sends the wrong message. Founders were fighting for billion-dollar valuations, not understanding what it meant for their preferences and everything else. Because investors, you know, they've been around the block. And you want a billion dollars? Sure, but here's some some fine print on the other side of it, which actually changes everything. This radical focus on it. I was a big skeptic of all the SPACs, and I had these huge arguments with, with founders telling them, you're going to destroy your company by going public. I had taken a, my first company, Delta 3, public in, in NASDAQ in 99, and I rode up to a billion and a half dollars valuation. Those were the days when the billion was a lot of money, not like today. Billion and a half dollar valuation, and then we went down to $80 million valuation, right? And we went through everything. Being a public company, a small public company, is the worst thing you can do. Your expenses go through the roof. You're sued by everyone. You get all the overhead of a large company without the, the value. And as a founder, that's not an exit. An IPO is not an exit. An IPO is a step in your journey, and it changes your, fund, your funding. Your funding was private up to now. Now your funding is public. But you don't get the money. You don't take the money out. If you want to exit your company, you need to sell it. okay? But if you take it public, it means you're in it for the next stage, the next 10 years. You're building it. And this is what I think got skewed in the last 10 years. People thought it's an exit. Oh, I'm a billionaire on paper. You could never sell those stocks. There's enough float to sell them. And we're all seeing it now. Companies down 80, 90% uh, percent in their valuation. Now, these are terrible things for companies. And so, for me, by the way, one of the things I've forced on myself and the problem with, with uh, uh, kind of more experienced founders is you sure you know everything that can go wrong. So, you want to overbuild and you want to overhire. And you want to create things which are the wrong trend for a startup. And so for me, a lot of my discipline has been around how do I stay scrappy? How do I keep focused on the user and on the product, right? How do I not spend until I have product market fit? And and, and these kinds of things are super important and money clouds all that. And the worst thing that happens with money is you begin buying your metrics. And obviously Google and Facebook love that because I think like 30% of all the money raised in Silicon Valley (laughs) went to them for ads, maybe on Amazon for servers, right? But at the end of the day, a good product has good fundamental KPIs. And if your KPIs are not good, no amount of money is going to solve that. And this, I think, is one of the biggest mistakes the last 10 years have happened in the Bay.
0: Yeah. So I think that makes a lot of sense. But as we wrap it up here, if you could get posts to where you wanted it to be, what would that future look like?
1: The future would look like that you open your phone and you have a feed full of content. That you want to read and you don't have enough time to read. And the content is not just it's traditional news, it's creators. You're discovering new creators that you've never heard of who have a problem discoverability. It, everything's accessible. So you decide what you want to consume, but everything's accessible. Some of it's free, some of it costs a few cents, some of them's asking for a tip, some of them pay whatever you want, right? All different models, but you get it. You do not have to be jumping around between ads and getting all this kind of paywalls and everything in there. And you can have a conversation that is productive. And you can spend 20 minutes and go away. You don't have to spend five hours doom scrolling. That's really the vision of where we want to get to. And you walk away feeling smarter rather than feeling depressed. So that is the vision of Post.
0: Yeah, that sounds super fascinating. I can't wait to see what what happens with posts. It's one of the reasons why I built the podcast, right? We see too many times in the media where they're just a bunch of clickbait headlines, but, you know, get real conversations with real people and bring that into the next generation.
1: That was the amazing thing in the beginning of Twitter, right? Yeah. That you could jump on board and meet these people and find yourself in an argument with an expert and an economist and like everyone having those conversations. That's the magic that's been lost in social media. And that's really what we want to bring back.
0: Yeah, I agree. All right, everyone. Well, that wraps it up for today's episode. Thank you, Noam, for taking the time to join the show. I appreciate it. Thank you very much.